It's not always the case that our Remembrance Day observation falls exactly on Halloween. In fact, I guess it only happens, what, every seven years? Someone who's six years? Someone who's better than math than me can figure that out. But it gives us an opportunity, I think, to reflect on some of the roots of Halloween, the ways that the Halloween idea has influenced our own day of memory and of loss. Because that's what it is, isn't it? It's a day when we bring to mind those we have lost over the last year or perhaps many years ago, those whose loss we feel keenly today for whatever reason. We try today to call those people into this space, to fill our hearts and minds with their presence, and to honor them with our memories. And in that sense, our Remembrance Day is very much inspired by Halloween, by All Hallows' Eve as it developed in the Celtic tradition, by All Saints' Day and All Souls' Day as they continued into the Christian tradition. In Ireland, Samhain, what became All Hallows' Eve, was a harvest festival, but also a time when the veil between the world of the living and the world of the dead was lifted, a time when the dead could come and visit and when those who were still living would pay special honor to their ancestors. As Celtic tradition and the Christian religion mixed and merged the way traditions will do, Samhain became intertwined with All Saints' Day on November 1st and All Souls' Day on November 2nd. They're celebrated differently in different Christian traditions, but the most common understanding is the Roman Catholic one. All Saints' Day honors those who have made it to heaven already, while All Souls gives a space for the remembrance and honoring of all the departed. The days are important in some Christian traditions because of the belief that prayer from the living for the dead helps to move lost souls toward heaven. In Mexico and in the Mexican diaspora, families link All Souls Day with the Day of the Dead celebration, what might be among the most colorful traditions associated with that lifting of the veil between two worlds. Parties are thrown in honor of those who have died, and entire families end up at the cemetery, picnicking near the graves of their lost loved ones, telling stories and eating and drinking the favorite foods of the ones they honor. The day's decorations include beautifully dressed skeletons, a kind of openness, I think, to death and what it brings, as well as a celebration of life and color. These days, in America, Halloween has become about mermaids and goblins and, in my family, cats, and about candy and pumpkins, of course. But we have not lost, I think, that innate desire to connect with those who have died. We still need our own Day of the Dead, our time to lift the veil. Mary and I were walking through a cemetery together recently on a break from a conference. That sounds relaxing, doesn't it? It was actually very beautiful. We were surprised by how decorated the graves were. 
At one grave in particular, family and friends had built a kind of altar dedicated to the one they had lost and to her birthday and to Halloween. The grave was covered dozens of little Halloween toys and decorations, and new pumpkins had been placed there with messages painted on. We love you. We miss you. Happy birthday. Happy Halloween. This woman had died more than 10 years ago, and the connection that her family felt to her was obviously still so fresh, so clear, that they made this pilgrimage to honor her. Almost every religion devotes time and thought to how we honor the dead, how we somehow stay in relationship with them even after we have lost them. The hunger to connect with those we lose has led people to seances, to mediums. It is behind the hope of heaven, behind stories of reincarnations that link us with those we have loved before in another lifetime. It is so deep, so keen, this hunger. And how could it not be? Losing a loved one to death is a kind of ripping away. Even when the person themselves may be ready, as after a long illness, we seldom are. We miss their voice, their laughter, their faults, their presence in our lives. Scientists can see grief, I've read, in brain images, see the ways that our neural patterns are disrupted and change when we experience deep loss. The brain doesn't seem to quite know what to do with the reality that the person it expects to see each day is no longer present. And so we hope, we try to find some way to keep our connection to the dead alive. I have had enough conversations with people close to death or close to losing someone else to death to know that it opens us up to mysteries we might not otherwise expect. There's a poem I came across years ago that I just love, a poem that speaks to mystery, I think, or our hope for it. The poem is from Barbara Peskin, and it's called She Speaks of Death. Oblivion, she said in a weary voice, is what is after death. There is nothing after death but nothing, and that's all right with me. It made good scientific sense, nailed to the cathedral door of her religious childhood. And when her husband died a few years later, oblivion pinned against eternity, sagged in the middle, and in its folds, sweet disbelief surprised her, and the hope She hadn't seen the last of him yet. Some of us are sure that nothingness awaits. Some of us see a hope in the return of matter to the earth. Others hold a different hope like the woman in the poem. But here's the thing. Even if we are like that woman, even if we feel an unexpected hope, even indeed if we hold some of the views of traditional religious frameworks which might promise a true reunion after death, even then, 
we don't really get what we want. Those hopes do bring comfort to those who hold them, I think, but they don't stop their grief. Because what we really want, what we need for our grief to stop, is to have the person return to us, just as they were to experience them in this life, in this moment. We don't want hope, really. We want them back. I can't tell you how much I wish I could make this better. So often I have been asked by those who are grieving what they can do, what words I can give them to ease their pain. There are no words. There is no way to make that process move more quickly. Grief is something to move through, something that stays with you as life goes forward day by day and year by year. There is a power, though, just in this acknowledgement, power in claiming the depths of our grief. It affirms the place that the person we lost held in our life, the place that they hold still. And in some ways, this pulls us closer to them, Our grief at their loss, our crying out in need and pain, tells us that they are still with us in some way, that they still occupy a space in our every day, in our lives. That's what those happy birthday pumpkins are about, I think, at the grave that we saw. They are powerful not because the person who died can somehow see them, but because the people who are still left made them. Their power is in the pumpkin painting, in the family gathered around a table to write messages to the one they still love so much. It's in the choosing of a perfect Halloween decoration to put on the headstone each year, in the purchase of fresh flowers to place on the ground every fall. It's the pictures we put up around our house of our great-grandmother, the stories we tell our children about the uncle they never met. Whenever it rains, I say, well, you know what my grandfather would say, it's a day for ducks. The truth is, I never heard him say that. But I've heard the stories. And the stories are important. So are our own lives, the lives we continue on with even when all seems lost. In the ethical culture tradition, we often talk about the deepest values of the person we have lost. We try to hold on to those values, to live in a way that honors those who are no longer with us. There is comfort in this, I think, to find in our loss a charge. It gives us a sense of purpose, and in our feelings of grief, we often need that purpose. And it is a comfort, too, to we who are alive to imagine that after our own deaths, our families and friends will honor us with their lives, that what we, that we might live on in their passions, their loves, their fights for justice and mercy and peace. I'm not going to lie, this storytelling, this honoring of values is not enough. 
As the poet John Holmes wrote, Memory keeps with loving care deeds they did and tales they told, but living men are hard to spare. Memory does not take grief away or make it all worthwhile, but it is what we have, at least right now. Death is a bitter pill to swallow. It casts the light of tragedy not just on an individual life, but onto the story of all our lives. But it brings gifts, too. It brings a clarity sometimes about the preciousness of life. It crystallizes for us the wonder of the present moment. This, too, is a way to honor those we have lost, to live our lives with deep presence, to ground ourselves in the here and now, weaving into that reality all the love, all the memories, all the stories of those who have gone before us. I'm not sure, in the end, what I think about the idea of lifting the veil between two worlds. On most days, I don't have an understanding of two worlds in any kind of actual sense. But I do know and experience the two worlds of time, the world of the everyday movement forward of life, and the world of remembering. And if those are the worlds we mean, then I hope I lift the veil more than once a year. I hope I try to tell stories to my daughter about all those we have lost, to remind her of the ones she loved as a baby or the ones I loved as a little girl. My daughter is named for her two grandmothers, Marcella and Elizabeth. Elizabeth, my mother's mother, died when I was in college, and I still miss her. Marcella, my father's mother, died when he was in college, more than 10 years before I was born. I miss her anyway, and I know her somehow, because my father has told stories and shown pictures, stroked my hair and said it reminds him of hers. The veil is never really closed if we keep it open.